Hey, you guys, you're listening to episode 85 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today, we're talking to Randy Alcorn, author of many well-known books, including two that have been referenced by many people on this show in particular, which are The Treasure Principle, as well as Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Randy shares his own generosity story and how God has worked in his life over the years, but we also took the opportunity to have him tackle some of the more difficult questions we've heard over the years when it comes to generosity, such as the role of eternal rewards, anonymous giving, where to give, and of course, financial finish lines. Before we get there, you know this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get the message out there by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thanks. It really makes an impact. All right, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with Randy Alcorn. Randy, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Great to be with you guys. So why don't you start us off just telling us a little bit about who you are, uh, some of your faith background, maybe your early life and career. Yeah, I was raised in an unbelieving home. Um, First heard the gospel when I was 15 years old. My dad was a tavern owner who was extremely antagonistic toward all things Christian. Uh, So the only thing I grew up with faith-wise was opposition to the idea of faith. My mom was, to the degree that you could be a saint without truly being a believer yet, she was. She was wonderful. I, I, I would look back at her and say, she bore the fruit of the Spirit just by the common grace of God, perhaps, but in any case, before she knew the Lord. And then when she came to know the Lord, it was it was beautiful. So that was my my pleasure to lead her to the Lord when I was in high school. So I came to the Lord when I was 15. Immediately, I was so interested in studying the Bible. I was an avid reader of comic books, science fiction books, all kinds of things like that before I was a believer. And that served me well because I just came right over to this new faith and I wanted to read all about it. And so studied not only the Bible, but great books by A.W. Tozer, uh, Francis Schaeffer, numbers of others started reading Charles Spurgeon. The Lord touched my life in many ways through Christian uh, thinkers. Uh, As I was reading C.S. Lewis, uh, I discovered on this bookshelf, the first book of his I read as a brand new Christian was The Problem of Pain. And then... I came back and I looked at other books he'd written. I was interested in, and then I found his space trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, That Hideous Strength, those others. And it was just like, oh my gosh, this is terrific. I don't have to give up fiction. I thought, you know, as a new believer, there were many things that the church was telling me were wrong. And so I figured this was probably one too, like probably everything I enjoyed had been wrong. But of course, then I discovered the beauty of God's grace and, and all of these things. So I uh, went off to Bible college. My then girlfriend, Nancy, who became my wife, right after we graduated, went through it with me, became a pastor, had a great interest in missions, became a missions pastor. Uh, and then uh, through peaceful nonviolence, not protest, but intervention at abortion clinics called the Rescuing Movement in the late 80s, I was arrested and went to jail and was sued so that they were coming to the church to garnish my wages 
So I resigned to protect the church from having to make that decision of civil disobedience along with me, because there's no way they were going to pay or that I would allow them to pay um, money to an abortion clinic. And so suddenly, um, after 14 years as a pastor, I was kind of launched out into, oh, I thought I was going to be the pastor at this church, probably the rest of my life. I still go to that church and love it. But so God had other plans and started a ministry called Eternal Perspective Ministries. It's been a platform for my writing and speaking. And they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And it's just been great the way the Lord proves his providence, his sovereignty. Well, Randy, your writing has been referenced so many times on this podcast that we've lost track. But uh, we've noticed that one of the central themes of much of your writing is a calling into joyful generosity. When did God start to draw your attention to the importance of generosity? Well, it was really immediately after I became a Christian, because one of the first books I read, which was then a new book, was Richard Wormbrand's uh, Tortured for Christ. And then I read Brother Andrew's you know, books. And then I read all kinds of missions-related things where people were making great sacrifices for God's kingdom. And so immediately after reading Torture for Christ and and ultimately out of that book came The Voice of the Martyrs and all of a lot of the modern things that we know of in that regard. And my, my first thought was I was picking berries and working, uh, digging potatoes in the summer as my summer job, um, making some money doing that and just thinking what I just want to give it. So back in the day, I didn't have a bank account or anything like that. And you weren't supposed to send cash in the mail, though I did it. Sometimes I discovered money orders. I don't know if anyone anymore uses money orders (laughs) or even knows what they are, but I would do that. It's a way if you didn't have a bank account that you could go in, give your cash and then get this money order to send in the mail. And I started supporting, I think it was called Eastern European Mission or something like that, which ultimately became uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And uh, I just wanted to help people who were persecuted. It broke my heart. Also at that time, uh, Corey Tin Boom, The Hiding Place, that came out. I just wanted to help needy people. And then I learned about other organizations, other ministries that were out there helping people. So I started supporting them. And then I realized what those offering plates were about at church. And so I think I actually was moved to give to the ministries before realizing, okay, apparently this isn't just for adults. Occasionally I see a kid put something in the in the offering plate. So I started giving to my church. And so giving has been a huge part of my life ever since then. So I'd love to hear your best 30-second elevator pitch for why somebody of faith would want to live a generous life. Well, there's a, a different ways to approach it, but in 30 seconds, I would say, one, because it will make God happy and that it will bring glory to Him. Two, it will make other people happy, and we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and then love our neighbors ourselves. And three, it will make us happy because Jesus said, it is more happy making to give than to receive. That word translated blessed usually is a Greek word makarios, which means happy making. So literally, Jesus said, it will make you happier to give than to receive. 
you have talked about this concept of a financial finish line, which has clearly been a focus throughout time on this podcast, uh, which is simply setting a limit for how much you keep and giving the rest away. Why do you think this is such a powerful strategy in how we manage our own finances? Well, I think it helps us to not only be generous givers, but disciplined givers, where we just don't let our lifestyles continue to increase as our income increases. Because otherwise, we'll just kind of edge on, you know, now I can do this, now I can do that, now I can have the second home, now I can have a nicer car, all of that. And again, I'm not speaking against second homes or nice cars or, or whatever. I just, in my, in my life, I can just tell you that if I didn't set limits and say, no, I'm normally not going to fly first class. I mean, if somebody gives me first class occasionally, I will take it. But, you, you know, and, and the same thing, I, God has provided uh, for us amazingly over the years with things that we said no to. Uh, like, for instance, one time uh, we had some extra income w- while I was still a pastor, and I sat down with Nancy and the girls, and Nancy and I agreed that I would do this and say, okay, girls, here's what we could do with this money. We could go and have a couple-of-week trip to Hawaii, and there'd be nothing wrong with that, and we'd have a great time, or we could use this same amount of money and then support help the hungry, the needy, get the gospel to people, translate scripture into the languages of people who don't have it. What should we do? And to some people that would sound, oh, that's so highly manipulative. And how dare you do that to your children? And our girls just were going, well, gee. You know, and then I said, of course, we'll still go on a vacation, but we'll go somewhere locally and it won't cost nearly as much and we'll have a blast. You know, so which should we do? And they were totally in favor of, yes, we'll still have a vacation, but let's use the money to help people. And it was, it was, it's just that kind of thinking. And by the way, um, people did tell me sometimes, especially when I went to jail for peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience in the rescue movement, um, and then ended up losing my job as a pastor or having to resign as a pastor had somebody, you know, come up to me and say, actually one of our elders wives um, say, do you even realize what you're doing to your children? The hardship that you're placing on them. I mean, do you even care, you know, about your kids? And I said, no, I don't care about my kids. Thank you for caring about them. But of course I care about my kids, but I actually (laughs) care more than anything else that my children would have seen an example of their mom and dad being willing to make sacrifices for the kingdom of God. And if they make some sacrifices along with us, then, you know, that's that's fine. And that will be actually good for them. And they'll find joy in that. But where I was going uh, with that, and going back to what I was saying about Hawaii, is it was like, I don't know, three or four months later that there were some people who said, hey, and they were friends, but we weren't close. And we didn't even know that they had a place in Maui. And they said, hey, it's just been on our hearts. And we would like to invite your family to come and use our place over in Maui anytime you want to. Well, since then, about once a year, and that was 35 years ago, we've made the trip to Maui. 
My wife is home with the Lord now as of a year and a half ago, but it was our favorite place to go. And they provided not only the place for us to stay, but a car for us to drive, their car that was just sitting there. And so it became for us a relatively inexpensive place to go. It was just the airfare and nothing else. And so that's an example. And, and this is not like health and wealth gospel where, well, if you make this sacrifice and do this, then God will pay you off and, and do that. It's no, none of this guarantee stuff. But I just thought it was very interesting that this all began with a decision to not go to Hawaii. And then that became a place provided for us at almost no cost to us for all the years since. It's just, I think God graciously will do things like that. Again, don't think, well, if I make this sacrifice, God owes it to me and he's going to reward me by doing what I want in this life. The biggest rewards and the most important ones, obviously, are in the life to come. But he also gives us great pleasures in this life as well, and we're grateful for him. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'd love to hear a little bit more kind of related to that, how God kind of walked you through that period after you had to resign from the church that you were leading, how you saw him provide for you and your family in those years that followed. And also, I mean, it sounds like you were already pretty deep into the calling into generosity at that point, how that affected giving and the kind of things that you had been able to be a part of leading up to that. It was interesting because it was 19, late 1988 when I got involved in the rescue movement. And I had already finished writing what was my third book, I think, the original edition of Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And I'd said everything I had to say about giving. And then it came out the spring, just weeks after I had to resign from the church. And so now I'm, I'm rereading it and going, well, have I changed my mind about anything? No, I haven't changed my mind about anything at all. But some people would probably think, well, gee, you had become a generous giver. You were giving away large portions of the royalties of your book and other things from your income. Well, at that point, we determined because they, the abortion clinics were coming after us um, uh, financially and trying to garnish our wages and all that, we decided to give away in perpetuity all the royalties from my books. And at that time, the royalties from my books, I mean, you know, that was my third book. I would be surprised if we were making more than five to $10,000 a year from the royalties of all three books together. And within probably a period of six months, my book started appearing on the bestsellers list. And just inexplicably, they're just, they're just selling really like crazy. And we're going, do you think that God is doing this because we've said all the royalties from my books are going to forever go to God's kingdom? And then since then, 12 million copies of the books have sold. So millions and millions of dollars that have gone into God's kingdom. We're thrilled about that. Sometimes people say, well, did you realize what you could do with that money if you would have kept it the kind of house you could have and the <laughs> all of the other things like that. And say, yeah, we do know that, but there is nothing we could do with that money that would bring us as much joy as giving it away as we have. And so 
even later when we had the option of no longer under the lawsuit and no danger of wages being garnished, our board said, ministry board said, hey, well, why don't you just take those royalties? You've earned them. You've written those books. And and so we just prayed about it. And we thought, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, God is providing for us. He's taking care of us. All the years we were under minimum wage, I made minimum wage and my wife made a, what would be like a, a secretary salary uh, for 20 hours a week. We did fine. God provided sometimes in what seemed like miraculous ways, and perhaps they were miraculous ways. I'm, I'm sure sometimes they were for us and our children. And it was it was a beautiful thing. Uh, but yeah, certainly the amount of giving we could do out of our personal income reduced, but we were giving away all the royalties to the the books. And so what we did then was, okay, we're going to do a minimum of uh, 10% to our church, and then we'll do above and beyond giving. But this is all out of what our actual income is. And it was radically less than it was when I was a pastor. And I'm not saying I made tons as a pastor, but compared to what we made subsequently over the next 20 years, uh, it was a lot. Well, Randy, you started to talk about it for a second there, and I know you've done some writing about it, but I'd love to just learn a little bit more about what eternal rewards look like. Could you just share a little bit more about eternal rewards? Right. One of the clearest teachings in all of Scripture is the doctrine of eternal reward. I mean, it's it's everywhere. It's It's actually shocking. It's everywhere you look, and sometimes we don't even see it. I, I remember when I was writing my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, I thought, well, I'm going to do a section of the book on rewards. At first, I thought a chapter on rewards. It ended up being four chapters on rewards, and even then, I had to leave out a lot of it because it was shocking. First of all, it was shocking how much the Bible has to say about money, but that's something that you know a lot of people point that out, and so all of a sudden, what I thought was going to be a, a sermon series of four messages. And even then, I thought, well, is there enough to, for four messages? And there's enough for, you know, 60, 80 messages. And even <laughs> then, you're not going to exhaust it. So, and then the part on rewards, you know, same thing. In terms of what rewards are, well, let me back up and say, okay, one example among many of rewards that are offered us for giving would be in Matthew 6 that starts out by telling us that we're to do our giving not in order to be seen by people, uh, but in order to be seen by God who will reward us. And that's in verses like 1 and 2 of Matthew 6. Then move forward to verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt and, and thieves break in and steal and all of that. But instead, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So there's an example of calling people to give treasures. That, that word means earthly wealth. But then another kind of wealth that is going to be given to us in heaven. And, and the word treasure is used in both cases, but I don't think the treasures he's talking about are simply, it's not like gold and jewels and money, who's going to need any of those in heaven. 
But the idea is if you take what God has entrusted to you and store it up in heaven by giving it away to the poor, the needy, to worthy causes, things that bring people to Christ and uh, give relief for people who are persecuted and things like that, then that will be something that will be awaiting you in heaven. So as I say in my book, The Treasure Principle, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we can take the temporary treasures that we're going to be parted from anyway. Either they will outlast us or we will outlast them. Uh, But anyway, you look at it, we're going to die and leave this world and store up treasures in heaven. That's an example of the kind of rewards that scripture is talking about. Now, what those rewards actually are and what they look like, we at least got some hints because we've got a number of passages where God talks about rewarding us by like the parable of somebody's put over five cities and somebody else has put over 10 cities. So that's a position of authority and responsibility that will be given to us in the kingdom of God. And a lot of people say, well, that doesn't even make any sense. In heaven, there's not going to be any of that social structure. There's not going to be like government or anything like that. Well, in fact, there is because scripture talks about that on the new earth. It talks about it in Daniel 7, where the people of God will reign forever. They will rule the earth to the glory of God forever. And then you actually see that in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 66. And then you see it in, of course, in Revelation 21 and 22, where the kings of the nations of the earth will bring their splendors, sometimes translated treasures, into the new Jerusalem. And I think they will be laid at the feet of Jesus as tribute. That would be similar to what you see with the crowns that are cast before him and his feet. Sometimes uh, eternal rewards are depicted as crowns. And again, whether it's a literal crown or not, uh, a crown, even a literal crown symbolizes a treasure that we He is acknowledging us, yet we are acknowledging him back and giving him the credit and giving him the glory. And by the way, in that regard, I sometimes they they say, people will say, you don't take all this stuff literally about treasures, do you? Well, literal in the sense that they they will be things we will treasure, you know, so you can, uh, you can look at a wedding ring. I still have mine on and no intentions of, of taking it off, but but it's it's my actual original wedding ring was not that fancy, but it was lost water skiing. So I've got this at a Christian supply store that I got however many years ago for $10 or whatever. But it's still meaningful to me because it symbolizes something. Okay, so the ring is a symbol, but it's also a real ring. So will will we wear white robes? I mean, the white robes symbolize purity, but will we still wear them? You know, maybe. And will we have crowns? Well, maybe we will. I can't imagine us wearing the crowns all around all the time. And I don't think (laughs) probably most kings and queens are doing that. And it it would seem a little strange to to do that. It seems like it would draw attention to yourself, although our hearts will be pure and maybe it will just draw attention to the Lord. But the point of eternal rewards is we don't know the exact shape they'll take, but I think responsibility. Uh, You've been faithful a little, I'll put you over much. God will entrust us with responsibilities that the government of the new earth 
the family business, we're part of the family of God. The family business is ruling the world to his glory. And he's going to delegate that to us. And what a privilege. And I, I sometimes have people, you know, there's so much wrong thinking about eternal rewards. And some people say, gosh, we shouldn't be motivated by rewards. That That's crass. That's just inappropriate. And they say, well, how about we let God decide how we should be motivated? Now, of course, reward shouldn't be our only motivation. Our primary motivation is love, love for God, love for people. But there's also hope of reward and promise of reward. And there's also fear of consequences. If I if I do the wrong thing, I'll be punished for it, not just directly by the hand of God, but even indirectly, because Scripture makes clear that the right thing is always the smart thing, and the wrong thing is always the stupid thing. So I think we don't know the exact form eternal rewards will take, but whatever they are and however they look, we will be grateful for them. God will be glorified in them. And more than anything else, we should not think about wanting rewards for our benefit, but for the glory of God. If our Father wants to reward us because He's so delighted with our service, who are we to question Him? You know, if eternal rewards were our idea, that would be entirely different. And and I'll wrap up this question by saying an illustration I give of that, and I think my book, The Law of Rewards, and it may also be in Money, Possessions, and Eternity, is suppose that when my daughters uh, were young and they were in high school, I said, okay, girls, on Saturday, we're going to have a family work day. Yay. But I am going to pay you so much for the work you do. And I think when I originally used the illustration, it was many years ago when it was like 20 or $30 a day. And I think it now we, we'd we say something like, I'll pay you 60 or $80 or, or more, whatever. It just depends on whatever minimum wage is, wherever you happen to be, but at least that much to do this. And I'm going to pay you and you can do whatever you want with the money. And then uh, we're going to get all get cleaned up and we're going to go out for a great dinner. Your dad will take you out to great dinner. Okay. So suppose I said that to my daughters and their response was, no, dad, we don't want you to pay us and we don't want you to take us out to a nice dinner. It's our duty. We don't want to be motivated by rewards, but only by if we love you, we'll keep your commandments and that's it. Okay, how would that have made me feel? Well, not good. It would have made me feel really disappointed. I want them to want the rewards that I offer them. But suppose I hadn't offered them any rewards and just say, hey, we're a family. It's a family work day. And that'd be fine. And we're all going to work. And then what if they came to me and said, dad, we're not going to do this unless you pay us this much for, per hour and take us out to a nice dinner. Okay. So that'd be terrible. So what's the difference between those? And the difference is whose idea was this? Eternal rewards is God's idea for us, not our idea. Yeah, I think that is super helpful. And I have always kind of thought of one aspect of eternal rewards as having to do with relationships. 
for example, and, and especially with giving, that it connects us to people in kind of a, a unique way yes. or even giving through organizations that are impacting countless others or even drawing us side by side with other givers who are giving in the same way. Is there any kind of evidence of that or you know, some indication that that might be an aspect of eternal rewards as well? Absolutely. I think, and let's see, is it in Luke 16 where you have the unrighteous steward, the unwise steward, and he is accumulating these assets, but then it said, I'm going to take what I have. And, and mm-hmm. then, and Jesus actually says, we are to use the wealth of unrighteousness, not that the wealth itself is, is unrighteous. But we are to take that worldly wealth that we have and to use it to make friends for ourselves in the eternal kingdom. And then they will welcome you into their dwellings. Now, a lot of people don't take that literally at all because they think, well, we're not going to have dwellings. We're not, well, yes, we are. We're, we're told we will have dwellings. He, he's gone to prepare a place for us. And, and, and in Isaiah 65, which is not just a millennial passage, it's a new earth passage. And it says new earth, uh, that, that people will live in homes. And why do we think that in the resurrection, we will not want to live places? Of course we will. I mean, that we will have resurrection bodies. And, and the world we live in will be a physical world. So that would be a perfect example of make friends for yourself. They will welcome you into their places because you have welcomed them into your place in this life. And that I think is just a beautiful depiction of the building of friendships because when hospitality takes place, we eat and drink with people. Our, our hearts are knit to them. Uh, and, and, and that's beautiful. I mean, right now, I mean, as of yesterday, uh, there was a online dedication of the Lagos Hope Operation uh, Mobilization Ship. They uh, have a library dedicated to uh, my wife, Nancy, the Nancy Alcorn Memorial Library. And I asked my two daughters who are in their 40s if they would go over in honor of their mom and in honor of the Lord and come and, and witness this and be there at the, the dedication. And of course, I knew they'd have the experience that we had when we spent five days on board the Lagos Hope of meeting all these people of every, I mean, over 70 different uh, people groups are represented in the 450 uh, or so uh, people who serve aboard the Lagos Hope. I mean, imagine that, 70 different countries these people are from, all these different languages. But people of every tribe and nation and language, it's it's a beautiful experience. And, and I'll guarantee you that my daughters will probably be corresponding with, I mean, texting with, whatever, with young people they met aboard that ship the rest of their lives, and we'll have a special place in their relationships with them in heaven. That happens every time we're involved in ministries. I mean, our ministry gives to uh, Water Mission. Uh, we give to Illuminations. You guys and I were at the same Illuminations conference uh, not that long ago. And mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to the next one. And I've been at, I think, three of them total. This will be, next one will be my fourth. And love this. And so we haven't met those people yet in this world. 
that we have provided funds for, the Bible translated into their language. Maybe we won't meet any of them in this life. Some people do eventually. But in the life to come, we're going to be sitting at banquets. Jesus, I think, eight times in the Gospels referred to sitting next to each other and eating and drinking in the kingdom of God. Remember, in his resurrection body, he says, I'm not a ghost. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. And then he ate with them, and the food didn't drop through to the floor because he was immaterial. No, it's a real body. And so that's how it will be for us. But can you imagine who we will be seated next to at these banquets, and there'll be not just one banquet, but many of them will be eating together. I think Jesus will be in charge of the seating arrangements, in many cases at least, and he'll probably put people right next to us, maybe on our left, who poured their lives into ours, and maybe we haven't seen them forever, you know, it seems like. And then there they are, and we remember and we talk about how it was, and and even things that we don't remember now, we will be brought back to mind or learn for the first time. And then maybe people on our right are people who we gave to and reached out to and prayed for and did everything to minister to them and their needs. And yes, I just think our eternal relationships, so many of these rewards will be in the form of those just really sacred and beautiful and exciting relationships. Randy, I'm wondering if there are different levels of rewards, eternal rewards that we're talking about, do you think there will be any any sense of lack or comparison? Yeah, that's a great question and one that people ask in, in different ways often. First, I would say there certainly will be no jealousy because jealousy would be part of the sin nature and there will be no sin. I had a pastor tell me one time, well, I know there won't be any sports on the new earth. And I said, how do you know that? Since we'll have bodies. And I don't think that was Satan's idea. I mean, yeah, we people came up with sports, but why wouldn't we have them on the new earth? And he says, because sports bring out the worst in us. And I'm a high school tennis coach. <laughs> and I, I've seen sports bring out the worst in people. It all, I've also seen it bring out the best in people. But this I know. And this is what I told this pastor. There will be no worse in us to bring out. We will be pure, covered in the righteousness of Christ. So our motives will be pure. Nobody will be lording it over anyone else because they have greater reward or whatever. But I would also say that Scripture does talk about loss of rewards. And it says in 1 Corinthians 3, we're warned against loss of rewards just to be careful. And I think loss of rewards doesn't necessarily mean we were going to get the award and now it's been taken from us because we did a bad thing. As much as it means the loss of rewards is rewards we could have had if we had served the Lord faithfully and then we didn't. So now, is that loss a true loss? Well, yes, or or, or Paul wouldn't call it. He He seems to think of it as a serious loss. So I'm not going to minimize... You know, we can kind of, with rewards, just kind of minimize them and make it sound like, well, it really doesn't matter. It clearly does matter because God says it matters. Now, do I believe that through eternity, we're going to have our heads hanging about the rewards we could have had if only we had? Uh, no, of course not. That, that would not be heaven. But I do think it's important for us to not minimize that. Um, so no, I don't think anybody's going to be 
feeling bad and left out, but the thought may well occur to us, you know, seeing what this person has to offer the Lord in terms of the rewards and their faithfulness and their willingness to give of their life and their assets and all of that. You know, if I had it to do over again, I would give more. I I think those thoughts will probably occur to us, but I don't think they will result in despair, mourning, or anything like that. Yeah, that's a good point. And I wanted to ask another question that I know is going to be on some people's mind, which is that, you know, the Bible talks about the fact that we are saved by faith, that Jesus' death on the cross is what, you know, purchases our salvation, opens the door for us into a relationship with God. How do rewards fit into a, a system where we are saved by faith? Yes, that is a very, very common question. And it's also one that sometimes makes people really angry because they say, no, wait a minute, you are teaching salvation by works. Oh, no, quite the opposite. Salvation is by grace through faith. You know, we we are told in scripture, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3, 5, in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace, you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God not by works, lest anyone should boast. But then what does verse 10 say, which is normally not memorized along with verse 9? It says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Okay, so what does that tell you? It tells you that God emphatically proclaims we are not saved by works. But that doesn't mean God doesn't value works and we shouldn't value works. Of course he values works. I mean, we're called upon to do good works. We're actually told that God has made us to do good works. But none of the works we do are in any way earning our salvation. Only the good work of Jesus done for us. That's the only work that can accomplish our salvation. But just because it doesn't bring our salvation doesn't make it a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing when the good work is done out of a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. And and this is what it should come out of. And for some people, the good works that they're doing are an attempt to gain status or even to win their salvation. Well, if that's the case, it'll never be successful and you won't be saved until you recognize it's only by the grace of Jesus, only by the gift of Jesus to you, you can be saved. But then don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't throw out the baby of works with the bathwater of works salvation. I mean, those are two totally different things. Yes, um, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, and and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and, you know, passages like that, only in relationship to the attempt to earn salvation, which we can't earn. Otherwise, God can look at the good works we've done and be very pleased with them and honored by them. Well, Randy, I wanted to dig into... uh discussion that uh, has come up a, a handful of times here on the show. Uh, in Matthew 6, verse 3 and 4, 
The Bible talks about not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give, because if you do, you've already received your reward. But it also says to let your light shine before others. So how should we think about giving in secret versus giving openly? And how does all of this impact eternal rewards? Right. I, I think there's there's a real balance here, and you've picked the right passages to compare because I'm often asked the question from the early verses of Matthew 6, and then I point back to the middle of chapter 5, which is the same sermon. And I would say one time as I read it, I think I calculated it would have been like maybe eight minutes earlier, depending on how fast he was talking, that Jesus would have said let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. So this is an actual command that we would do some good works in the sight of other people. Then you have the command in Matthew 6, Do not do your good works in order to be seen by men. All right. That's a purpose in order to. If your motive is to be seen by others and receive credit and praise, then you're seeking the praise of men and not the praise of God. So how can both of those be true? Well, to me, what I what I tell people is, you know, if you take every other good work that God has called us to do in the church, almost without exception, we have no problem with somebody standing up maybe on a Sunday morning. The pastor says, hey, would you tell us your story of what you've learned in your family about how to parent your kids? You know, what are some good things you've learned to do with your kids that have been helpful? Or what are, what are some things in your marriage that you've done to to build a good marriage? Or what about if we were asking somebody, what have you learned about the disciplines of the Christian life? What have you learned about prayer? Okay, tell us your prayer story. And then somebody can say, well, for a long time, I didn't really have specific times of prayers. I just do the prayer without ceasing, except I, I just would do the quick prayer and then I'm done. And it wasn't a really a prayerful attitude. But then I learned first to just start with 10 minutes and then to 15 minutes and, and, you know, and, and maybe now they might say I'm up to an hour of prayer, but I still, there's a lot more I could do. And lots of other people done a lot more of that. Okay. Well, you've just taken, by the way, giving and fasting and prayer are talked about together in those same verses in, in early Matthew six. It's not just giving, but would most of us feel like that was inappropriate that they had shared their story? What about your pastor? If he's preaching on prayer, do you want him to say anything about his prayer life? Well, if he preaches on prayer and doesn't say a word about his own prayer life, that would just be weird. You want to know. You, We need footsteps we can follow. And so what I say to people is don't isolate giving. And, and a lot of people do. Oh, no, we can never have anyone Tell us what they've learned about giving. Because if they do that, then that's seeking the praise of men. Well, it could be seeking the praise of men. And if that's why you're doing it, you will lose your reward. So so like I, I've been told, well, why, why do you tell people the story of giving away the royalties from your books? 
Are you boasting about your giving? Why do you tell people that, you know, don't assume that you're supposed to leave 100% of your money when you die to your kids who may be as wealthy or more wealthy than you? And he may be a doctor and she may be a lawyer. And why aren't you leaving it to people who really need it? And all of that. I mean, like when you talk about that, you're talking about your giving and we're forbidden to do that. No, we are not forbidden to do that. What we are told is God will not be honored and we will lose our reward if our motive in talking about our giving, and the same would be true of prayer, of your Bible study habits, of your fasting, of of good things you've learned about your marriage and, and parenting, then if you do it to get praise for yourself, you will lose your reward. You will not be rewarded for it. So what I've told people is when I've stood before them and say, okay, I just didn't recommend that you consider taking something in your life. And when I speak to writers, I'll say, choose one book. And then say, Lord, all the royalties from this book are going to go to you. If they're doing this and this is their living, and that I understand that, that they're not going to give away 100% of the royalties like we do. But just do that. And then other people have a second business or they, they do a yard sale, give away 100% of that or whatever. Okay. So if they tell that story to somebody, I hope it's going to get those other people excited about giving. We know who the prayer warriors are in our church. I mean, do you guys know of people in your church that, hey, if you've got a prayer request, take it to them because they are prayer warriors. And and by analogy, I would say we need to know who at least some of the giving warriors are in our churches where we can go to them. I know I could learn about prayer from this person. I could go over to their house and pray with them. I could ask them, would you teach me about prayer? Would you mentor me in the ways of prayer? Well, we need giving warriors in our churches where people, younger people can say, hey, look, these people know what the giving life is about. I want to learn about it from them. That can't be known without at some point people becoming aware that God has taught you something about giving and that you're a joyful giving person. And that's okay as long as that's not what it's all about for you in terms of your motive. Yeah, I think, I mean, the way that you lay out those two passages side by side and how it all comes down to motive, I think that actually makes that a very clear kind of distinction that you can quickly kind of rule through in your head. And I'm so glad that many people do share their stories or we would not have a podcast at all here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I was going to so much yeah, fruit exactly. from that. <laughs> Exactly. And, and the things, same thing in the, the generous giving conferences and those conferences mm-hmm. originally were started out of four guys who read my book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Um, they came to me and I said, Hey, look, we're starting this organization. Would you speak at our first conference? And Ron Blue and I spoke at that conference. And then the next couple of years we spoke at it. And then they discovered lots of other people that were better than we were to convey and share their <laughs> testimonies and all. But I, I still occasionally go to generous giving conferences and always love them. But the point of it was, we need to hear people's giving stories. Yeah. And yeah. if you if you don't hear people's giving stories, you won't become as as great a giver as God wants you to be in the same way. If you don't hear prayer stories and Bible study stories, I mean personal Bible study. My wife was a 
great student of God's word and is even more so now being in the presence of God, I'm sure. But she helped other women to study the Bible. And, and it would be like, what if she said to herself, oh, no, I can't help her study the Bible because then she'd know that I study the Bible a lot. And that would be like bragging and I'd lose my reward. No, we got to pour into each other's lives and hear each other's stories. And we really need to hear those giving stories. And we need to be prepared to explain something similar to what I just did, because immediately if it's giving, there's people. I mean, we actually had a man in our church say he was offended because the church sends out uh, tax receipts to him. And and it, it's it's automatic. I mean, there's, there's, there's one or two people in the church that would know what he gives because that's where the accountability comes in. And those things have to be recorded. But he said, because the Bible says your left hand should know what your right hand is doing and all that. And, and by the way, don't take that one too literally. First of all, there is no knowledge in a left hand and a right hand. It is impossible <laughs> for your mind, which is the center of your knowledge, to distinguish between your left hand and your right hand. It's an analogy. What it's saying is don't be self-consciously preoccupied with the merit of your giving. Yeah. I'd like to pivot for a second and see, do you have any helpful framework for how Christians should think about where they actually give? Yes. We've got a couple of articles on our website. One, I think it was 19 questions to ask before you give. And then one time I think I did a blog and something like 11 uh, questions to ask and kind of boiled it down a little bit more. But certainly uh, a big one is to see firsthand I mean, certainly you read a website if it's a ministry that's distant from you. If it's your own church, you can hopefully see things that are being done. Uh, I would also warn people, however, that if they're reading things from ministries far off, they will always sound more impressive than what they're actually seeing in their home church. Because in their home church, yes, a lot of stuff is going to staff wages, and hopefully those aren't out of line but a good proportion, this is this the nature of things, is going to be going to them, and you don't realize it. But, of course, the same is true, and sometimes more so, in the ministries you're giving to. But you're just being told about the actual missions work they do. And, wow, it seems like they do more than my church does. Well, don't don't judge your church unfairly because— you know, it's like your church is your family, and and you want you want the bathroom to be clean, right? And 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 all of that. Uh, but in terms of seeing firsthand what ministries do, and not just believing every impression they're giving you, because they're being very selective with what they're telling you. It's like a missionary prayer letter. And I was a missions pastor, and I love missionaries, but don't think that missionary prayer letters, because everything you read is the things they're doing in missions, right? But they're not telling you about the the standing in line in the market for hours and trying to get a permit to do something. And three days it took, you know, working on their car to get it fixed. And I mean, they're not, you know, you don't want to hear those stories or they don't want to tell those stories. But the point is, find out what a ministry actually does. One of the missions that we support is a water mission. And I have had conversations, I've interacted with, I've talked to people who work with Water Mission, have interacted with them. Years ago, we supported children through Compassion for years. And I went to Compassion, to their headquarters in Colorado Springs. 
spoke there, met a number of people. And one of the questions that I asked people is, how do you like working here? And when you can talk to staff members somewhere, if their eyes fall down and you can tell they don't really respect their leaders and that they feel like, oh boy, something's not quite right here. You know, I, I wish we could, it probably isn't an appropriate question to ask, but you know, if I wish we knew how many of you give to this organization that you work for. And, but you can ask, ask questions like that, even if they're not right on the nose with that. But I would say, find out anything you can. Now, my daughters, you know, I said they're with Operation Mobilization and they're just leaving there. The ship in Tanzania and it goes to ports all over the world. And one of them was just saying, oh, dad, I can't believe the ministry they do. It is, you know, spectacular. Well, Nancy and I were with them five days in Jamaica and that's what we saw. We just said, this is fabulous. And, and these people are raising support to go do this. And they're going all over the world. And, and in fact, Nancy and I said, okay, so does the crew ever get a vacation? They said, well, we try to give them some time to go out for one week of the year. But you know, we had something in mind with this little island here where near Jamaica where they could go snorkeling. But we just, it's just not affordable with, and I said, well, how much is it? And, and I, I thought that's affordable. We just gave that amount of money so they could all go do that. And, Operation mobilization didn't have to. Now, do you think I'm boasting about that? I, I'm only, what I'm boasting about is I got to do that. I guess that's a boast. I had the privilege. My, my wife and I were thrilled. We didn't go, oh, we'll make this sacrifice for God's kingdom. And one day maybe he'll reward. I mean, it had nothing <laughs> to do with it. It was like, we love these young people and what they're doing. And we want them to have a good time. And I love snorkeling. And Nancy loves beaches. And so for us to be able to do that for them was just was terrific. But what I'm saying is when you see ministries close up and firsthand, if you can do that, otherwise get on the phone, talk to other people and just say, what do you know about this group? But check, check into them. Do not believe all the claims of ministry. And another thing I say to people is if you're getting letters that say, and a lot of ministries do this, sadly, now we will have to close our doors by December 31st unless we receive $6 million more by the end of the year. You know what? Sometimes I'm going, maybe it's God's will for that ministry to shut down. I, I mean, I don't know, but don't do it just because they have a great financial need and they sound like they're doing good. Check into it. Well, Randy, uh, we're learning in our own lives that the generous life is really one that you constantly are growing in. How has God been teaching you more about generosity lately? Well, you know, I think for me in the 18 months or so, a little over a year and a half that it's been uh, since Nancy went home to be with the Lord, I've been reminded that the decisions that Nancy and I used to make together, I'm making alone now. And I, I can consult other people and I can ask them, but I have, for the most part, I know what I want to give to. But but I have to remind myself because Nancy would remind me of things. Hey, you know, we've been given to so-and-so and such, and such, but I don't think we did that year. And I looked it up and sure enough, we, we haven't given to them this year. 
And do you want to do that? Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But now a lot of it kind of falls on me. So I have to remind myself. I mean, I have the the regular things that we have an automatic deposit that goes to our church. And I think we give something like to the church, something like 12, 13%. But then the over and above giving, the the checks. I'm not a great check writer. Nancy always did that. And so then I have to look at direct deposit or use a card or something. I don't know. So to me, uh, one of the challenges has been kind of the discipline of how to go about the giving and the simple remembering of groups that we have supported. But I've also been reminded that it's been a while since I've really felt stretched in the giving. Sure, the royalties are going every month, and and I participate in, in where those royalties are given. For instance, the last few years, a significant amount of royalties have gone to the Illuminations project. And each year I've got, I, 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 I joke sometimes with Todd Peterson and some of the others like, okay, so I'm asked back as a speaker and, and when it's a missions group, I don't take an honorarium. I, I just don't feel right about it. I don't feel right about calling upon other people to give to a ministry that I'm profiting from, but also it's like, wow, I mean, every time I go speak at that conference or that conference or that conference, you know, a lot of the royalties end up going to that ministry. And that's great. And that, I think, is is as it should be. But I do need to stretch myself more, I think, uh, and just say, okay, what are new ways? It's been a while since I've kind of gone out on the limb a little bit, just, just given this more than I think maybe I can afford. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about irresponsibility where I'm I'm going to write out a check for $10,000 and there's $0 in the bank and I'm just going to trust God to provide. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about stretching yourself. Yeah. And I think that's that's probably true for all of us a lot of the time. Now, I'm interested. You have a lot going on and you've been a part of so many things. What are you most excited about when you look towards the next five to 10 years? Yeah, I, I'm excited about finishing some book projects that ha- have been very close to my heart, some that I'm currently working on, some that I started up to six years ago before Nancy got sick with cancer, and I had to put a lot of my writing on the shelf. I, I got a few books out in those four years, um, her last four years in this world, but it was, you know, definitely significantly fewer than I'd been able to produce. And I've gotten back to them and I've gotten excited again. I've relearned the discipline of, of the writing. And I don't know how much time I've got left in this world. I mean, I'm 69. Maybe my brain and body will still be doing okay when I'm in my eighties. And if so, I'll just continue. I have no plans of retirement. I mean, I may well slow down, but I'm just saying I am excited about what's ahead, not even knowing all that's involved, but I, I I've got several book projects I'm working on. I'm excited about, and I love having the the feeling of excitement again about it, and also having restructured and gotten back to a discipline where I can actually carve time out of my schedule to get that writing done. Other thing I love about it, and this is exciting to me, is that more writing means more research and more reading. 
And I love to read. I love to research. I love to discover. Um, when I'm driving, I'll, I'll have an audio book on that's in a subject area that I'm writing on. And I just, I just love learning a new thing. And, and every once in a while, I'll jot something down. And, oh, yeah, yeah. Be sure you deal with that. So as we come to a close here, I just wanted to leave some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So, Randy, do you have any suggestions for our listeners today? I would say go to someone you know that you consider to be a generous person, a person with a real world missions mindset. It might be your pastor if you're in a larger church and you have a missions pastor. It might be them. It might be a missionary family you know. Go to them and say, tell me what you have learned in your life about giving. Or maybe it's a successful uh, business person that you know that is a generous giver. Could be a teacher. It could be anybody of any occupation. But you've just picked up that giving is is an important part of their life. Uh, maybe they go and, and help the needy and just say, could we spend an evening together? And would you just walk me through what you do and what is important to you and what you have learned? And I would say once you do that with one person and you spend an evening like that, you may find yourself going, okay, I got to do this again. We get together with people for dinner anyway. Why not ask them this question and sit at their feet and learn from them? And that's what Cody and I spend a lot of our time doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah, that is a great suggestion. And I, I will second that wholeheartedly. Well, Randy, this has been an amazing conversation, so much to unpack, and just grateful to have you with us to share your wisdom and and your thoughts on a wide range of of topics today. My pleasure to be with you guys, and thanks so much for what you do. I mean, anything that furthers generosity among the people of God, you know, there's, I say in one of my books that, or maybe a couple of my books, is that God's grace to us is lightning, and our giving to him is thunder. The lightning comes first. You know, we've got to absorb the grace and the givingness, and that's what grace is, of God to us. And then out of that grace to us should be our grace that comes out to others. And I just think that the privilege of that is so great. And I actually feel so sorry for believers who have not discovered this. And and an interesting Mm -hmm. thing you see is sometimes in the secular world, uh, you'll see people who have discovered this. I remember the first time I saw Bill Gates and Warren Buffett on a PBS special get together and they were like, two little kids. They had discovered giving. And and it was like early on, this was years and years ago, they had discovered giving. And and, and Buffett is saying, you know, I never understood, and not, not as a believer, I never understood why I made all these billions of dollars. And now I know why, so that I could have the joy of giving it away. But, but the point is, secular people discover the joy of giving. And I know Christians who have never discovered it. I know pastors who have never discovered the joy of giving. They've always thought, you know, church doesn't really pay me enough anyway, so I'm not going to give and all that. Now, I don't mean most pastors do that, but I've talked with some who who believe that. 
And, and I just go, I feel so sorry for you. How do you preach a message on giving when that's how you personally feel about giving? The undiscovered country, you know, so to speak, the, the, the joy of giving, there's so much that people are missing out on. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 85. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.